We're doing another 4 Minutes of Threads episode today. We're on part 11, which means we are at the 40th minute of the film. The 40th minute of the film shows Ruth and Jimmy in their new flat, and they're scraping the old wallpaper off, getting it all ready for their new baby, their new life. And they have the radio on as they work. I suppose these days they'd have music streaming through Spotify or YouTube or something, but this is the 80s, so they have the radio on. But because we're in the emergency period here, the countdown to nuclear war, the radio is broadcasting not Duran Duran or Spandau Ballet, but Protect and Survive, probably on a loop over and over and over. This would be going out at this stage on TV and radio, but after the the attack, all TV would stop, and that would be for a number of obvious reasons, but the BBC would shrink down into something called the Wartime Broadcasting Service, and that would be radio only. There were always rumours that the BBC was going to play The Sound of Music or Hancock's Half Hour after the bomb dropped to keep our morale up, but this simply wouldn't have happened because there would be no mains power after the bomb. So people would be tuning in on battery-powered radios. And there's no way you're going to drain your battery listening to a nun singing Climb Every Mountain. No, you'd be told to preserve your battery power and only tune in on the hour to get short, essential news bulletins and instructions. As we discussed in the last Threads episode, Ruth cries and Jimmy comforts her. And the camera pulls back to show us the exterior of the block of flats and we see that theirs is the only lighted window. Either they're up late working or the neighbours have all evacuated. If so, it would be self-evacuation. There was no evacuation scheme in Britain at this time. There had been in the earlier Cold War, but by this point, realising the futility of trying to find somewhere safe in small, cramped, overcrowded Britain, which is going to be blanketed with fallout, the advice changed. It became the opposite of evacuation. It became stay put, stay in your own home. That's not to say that people wouldn't have tried to evacuate, but again, as we've discussed in previous episodes, the By this stage in the crisis, the government, the authorities would have closed down all the main motorways, labelling them essential service routes for government use only, and they would have been, you'd have been banned from using them if you were a frightened civilian trying to flee. You could have jumped in your car and taken the back roads, of course, but I have read it somewhere, I can't remember where exactly, that the authorities, or some authorities, considered it quite acceptable for everyone to jump in their cars and head off along the back roads because they would then create gridlock. They would create immense traffic jams on all the minor roads in Britain. They would create gridlock and they would block the roads, thereby preventing any more self-evacuation. So the government wouldn't need to block off all the minor roads because the panicked self-evacuees would have done that for them. 
So the advice here was stay in your own home. But if the neighbours have run for it, well, why have Ruth and Jimmy stayed? Is it the lure of their new home? The desire to DIY? If so, this is Thatcher's inspirational Britain pinning people down in their homes to await nuclear death. You can't leave your home not after you've spent all that money on it. Got all that anaglypta, all that pebble dash, all that velvet-flocked wallpaper. We give you the right to buy and you just wander off. Well, Ruth and Jimmy are alone in the darkness. They're surrounded by strips of damp wallpaper and that terrible radio declaring that the end is nigh and their bare windows are letting in the darkness. Not even a thin curtain is up to keep out the night. They are utterly exposed. Then comes a scene which frightens quite a lot of people, including me. There's obviously lots of horror in Threads, but I find the quietly unsettling stuff to be worse. And this is one of those moments. We see the fire engines quietly leave the city. The big wide doors of the fire station swing open and three engines quietly exit the station and make their way through the dark streets. Whilst people did not have an official evacuation plan, as we discussed earlier, there were plans to evacuate or to disperse fire engines and ambulances, so that they might at least survive the attack. Although a bunch of fire engines will be of no use in tackling the types of fires you'll get after a nuclear war. You will have firestorms, and these are not ordinary fires. I refer you back through my podcast archive where you'll find an episode on firestorms and another on the Auxiliary Fire Service, that latter episode's called The Green Goddess. And those of you who have seen the war game will know the horrifying scenes where they reenact firestorms and we see firemen writhing and twisting on the ground because they're dying of heat stroke but also of suffocation because a firestorm rips the oxygen out of the air and sucks it into the heart of the fire. I'll turn here to a brilliant book about the Hamburg firestorms called Inferno by Keith Lowe. This explains why a firestorm is no ordinary fire. The book tells us about the various horrible aspects of a firestorm which separate it from an ordinary blaze. First, the firestorm is so vast that its smoke could suffocate people who are safely distant from the flames. There's also the risk of carbon monoxide poisoning because the fire takes all the oxygen out of the surrounding air. And that is why so many people in Hamburg who sheltered in basements and air raid shelters, were killed by the firestorm and yet were untouched by flame. Another terrible feature of a firestorm is the incredible temperatures. And this book tells us that the Hamburg firestorm could have reached as high as 800 degrees. This superheated air, as well as being dangerous in its own, for its own sake, also means that the air will rise. We all know from our basic science lessons at school that warm air rises, so therefore superheated air will rise very high. Quoting from the book here, As air rushes skywards, it leaves a vacuum, 
which sucks new air from the surrounding areas to fill it. The new air brings oxygen, which feeds the fire. The process accelerates, the fire gets hotter and the winds get faster, often reaching speeds of 60 to 70 miles an hour. This is what gives the firestorm its name. The combination of huge fires and storm force winds. As long as there is enough fuel to keep the fire burning, the winds will continue to blow. Another horrible feature of a firestorm in a city is that the winds cannot run in one straight line. It'd be terrible enough if the hurricane winds were just going one way, streaming straight to the heart of the fire, but in a city, the winds are forced into a kind of unpredictable chaos by the obstruction of the buildings, those which are still standing, of course. So, as Keith Lowe describes, the terrible winds in Hamburg at some stage perhaps reaching as fast as 170 miles an hour. They were swirling and changing direction. He writes, They were channeled along streets, sometimes meeting head-on at junctions, causing eddies and swirls that knocked people off their feet. And we see this, of course, recreated in the war game, with people dragged and swept along the ground. So then... Imagine what use a little red fire engine would be there. It'll be no use. So yes, it does make sense to evacuate your fire engines so that one, they will survive the attack, and two, they will find themselves on the outer fringes of the blast zone where they might find manageable, normal fires they could at least have a chance of tackling. Another reason why this scene frightens me so much is because, as so often with threads, it makes me feel like a child again. As I've said before, I'm sure, on this podcast, I was a three-year-old when I first saw the film, and it reduces me all over again to that same childlike fear that I felt the first time. This scene where the fire engines leave is like the adults are leaving. The grown-ups are going away and leaving us, helpless children, to fend for ourselves. The people who will help us and rescue us and are trained to be brave and capable, they're all going away. And we who are left in the city are as helpless as children. There's no fuss being made as the fire engines leave, no protests, no anger at the city being abandoned to its fate. We just see one person looking forlorn, watching from his window as they all trundle down the streets and vanish, and in the silence they leave behind. A lone dog barks. It's as if we are beyond protest now. Perhaps we've moved into a stage of paralysed resignation. It's coming and there's nothing we can do. The scene changes. It's daylight and we see a milk float bumbling down the street. Milk again. I've spoken before about how milk appears again and again in the film. Symbolising, I guess, normality, domesticity, wholesomeness. So here is the milk float, symbolising ordinary life and the start of a new day. But what day is it? 
Well, the screen tells us this is Saturday, May 26th. It's that day. Just to add a sense of unease to the scene, the little milk float is from the Hillsborough Dairy. And of course, at the time the film was made, the name Hillsborough probably meant nothing to people outside Sheffield, but now, of course, we all know it as the scene of one of Britain's worst disasters. Just five years after this film was released, the name Hillsborough would be known everywhere. We need to remember that at the time this name was innocent, but now, watching it now, it just seems to add to our sense of dread or of horror. Now, just as our friendly milk float pulls into the street and the milkman starts going door to door in his jaunty blue coat, Mick Jackson hits us with a terrifying, jarring voiceover from Protect and Survive. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, and as it plays, move the body to another room in again, the house. Again, scenes of Label the body almost with boring normality. The milkman goes door to door. We see views of the chimney pots and TV aerials. Everything is utterly normal, utterly ordinary, humdrum, run of the mill, boring even. And over these innocent however, scenes, which could have, have come straight from Coronation Street, we have this dreadful and voiceover. If it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial. This is the most horrifying section of Protect and Survive. You might mock the rest of the advice or say that it's futile or misleading or childish. Some might even say, reluctantly, that there are kernels of common sense in it. So if you uh, reluctantly admit that some sections might make sense, this section, the one we're hearing in this bit of threads, this is horrifying. This is where all hope is stripped away. If the departure of the fire engines made us feel small and alone, <laughs> then try this on for size. The authorities are admitting that they have deserted you, to the extent that you'll have to bury your own dead. You might wonder what right the surviving shreds of government will have to call upon the population to expect their compliance and obedience in rebuilding the country when they've absented themselves so much that people are burying granny in the garden. I know there's probably no alternative, but I can see a little bit of resentment perhaps here. <laughs> After all, think how much it all kicks off on Facebook when your local council miss a bin collection. It's all, why should I pay my council tax when you can't even collect the bins? So I could foresee a bit of, why should I hack and scrape at the irradiated fields when you can't even bury Auntie Doreen? <laughs> As for Ruth, her pregnancy goes on, as normal, even though everything's about to end. We see her bent over the sink, she's stricken with horrible morning sickness, and she isn't in that cold new flat, she's in the relative safety of her parents' home, a big stone Victorian villa in the posh bit of Sheffield. You can see it on Street View, at Rustlings Road, overlooking Endcliff Park. Her new flat with Jimmy will offer little protection from nuclear attack, 
But for now, Ruth is safe, although in the most horribly vulnerable position, bent over, vomiting, weak, dressed only in a thin nightgown. She could hardly be less prepared for what's coming. As she shuffles through to the living room, all queasy and miserable, again, Protect and Survive is playing, this time on the TV. But his guidance has also been printed in the newspaper, and her dad, capable, sensible, middle-class dad, with his glasses on, dressed neatly in his shirt and waistcoat, he's reading the advice in the newspaper. It was indeed planned to print Protect and Survive in the newspapers in the last days before attack. This was a relatively foolproof way of getting the message out in printed form to everyone, in case the ambitious plan, ridiculously ambitious I think, which was to print a gazillion copies in booklet form and have them posted to every single home in the land, had fallen through. Of course, the government couldn't print them all out in advance because they would just sit and moulder in some home office warehouse or they would perhaps go out of date. We might have needed some kind of update to it. Or <laughs> someone would find this warehouse full of protectors of the or someone working at the printing plant would have gone to the newspapers and said, bloody hell, they're printing it. It must be happening. And then panic would ensue. So they couldn't print the booklets out until the very last minute. But doing it in the very last minute means that it's surely doomed to fail. And that is why we would have had it printed in the newspapers and going out on TV and radio. So Mr Beckett spreads his newspaper out on the table. It's a broadsheet paper, of course, big wide pages. There are no little copies of the sun or the mirror, not for him. Thank you very much. And as he studies the, the diagrams and the instructions, his wife plonks a cup of tea down on the paper. He smartly moves out of the way. He doesn't say anything, but the implication is perhaps bloody woman. He's trying to save the family and she's fussing around with teacups. Ruth enters and sits down at the table while she kind of throws herself down like a, a sulky teenager. She's obviously feeling miserable, absolutely miserable and sick. And I get a hint of annoyance on Mr Kemp's part. He's busy at the table. But here come the women with their domestic concerns, wife with her tea and now Ruth slumping at the table talking of morning sickness. She's wearing her frilly nightgown, Mrs Kemp in her pink cardigan. But Mr Kemp, he's the only one dressed for action, ready to face the world in all its horror by putting on his best waistcoat and white shirt. Again, perhaps that's his way of coping. He is clinging to his version of normal life, which was, before this happened, work, getting up every day, going out to the office to be the responsible breadwinner. So he's still wearing what are, I suppose, his office togs, his uh, shirt and waistcoat. So both Mr and Mrs Kemp are clinging to the routines and the style and the fashion of what they normally do. Mrs Kemp offers to phone Ruth's work to say she'll be off sick, but Ruth says there's probably no one in the office. There were only one or two in yesterday, she says. Another indication, perhaps, that everyone has scarpered. Either having fled the city completely, or perhaps busy stockpiling and building and boarding up the house. Or maybe just at home, frightened. 
But it's irrelevant anyway because Mrs. Kemp can't make the call because the line is dead. This is an accurate scenario and I think we've covered it in a previous episode called Gold Phones and Red Phones where we learned that in the days before nuclear war in Britain something called the telephone preference system would click into place and this would sever most of Britain's residential phone lines. This would mean of course that as war approached the phone system would not be overloaded with panicked families trying to ring one another. We switch now to the council bunker beneath Sheffield Town Hall and it is action stations down there. Final preparations are being made. We see a close-up of a carrier receiver. This looks like a grey intercom or speaker and its purpose was to sound the alarm. Missiles are launched, people above ground will of course hear the siren. But you're not going to have a siren down in a bunker, it would deafen everyone for a start. Instead, designated places, such as these little bunkers, would have had these devices fitted, and they emit a constant bleeping sound. This has been described as a kind of nuclear all's well signal. It lets you know that the thing is connected, it's working, and it's ready to sound the alarm. But at this moment, everything's cool. You can turn the volume of the beeper up or down so it didn't drive you mad. But when the attack begins, when it all kicks off, that reassuring constant bleeping would stop and it would rise to a horrible wail and then a human voice would break through saying attack warning red. This is the equivalent of the siren for those in the bunkers. And here's a sample of it. Down in the bunker, everyone is working flat out, and we see a box of Weetabix on the table. I had to pause and really, really zoom in and try and work out what it was, but yes, it's a box of Weetabix. Now, I wondered why the guys down there would be tucking into Weetabix, because that involves, of course, fresh cold milk, and we don't see any. And it'd be unlike Mick Jackson to miss a chance of showing us the symbolic milk bottle. But then I notice flat plates full of crumbs next to the Weetabix box. So perhaps the implication is they're already adjusting to hardship by (laughs) having their Weetabix dry. So what would people have been eating down there in those bunkers? We know that households above ground were advised to stockpile tins and water etc. But if they managed to acquire loads of stuff, they would have had the space to store it. But a tiny cramped bunker tucked underneath the town hall, full of staff and bunk beds and filing cabinets and telephones and radios, there would hardly have been room to move down there, as we see in this scene. It's not spacious, there would not have been loads of cupboard and kitchen space, so where are you going to hoard all your cherished tins? So instead of nice Tins of salmon and chicken noodle soup you would have instead, I suppose, rations, uh, actual ration packs, which are hardly um, appetising. So the food down there, given the constraints on space, would have been grim. Huge bunkers, such as the famous Burlington Bunker in Wiltshire, had space for storage. They they even had a canteen. So they had loads of storage for, for food and 
even space for arguably fancy cookery items like um, they had a butter patter machine and fish knives and they'd industrial sized machines for mixing cakes and baking bread. So huge government bunkers, if everything went according to plan, they would have been well stocked with things to eat. But these tiny, cramped, makeshift bunkers beneath town halls? No. There would have been no Victoria sponge or freshly baked bread in there. Instead, and there's a section on this in my book, staff who'd have been summoned to government bunkers would have been asked to bring some of their own food. Not anything hearty, you know, you can't bring a roast chicken along with you. But they were advised to bring some snacks, some chocolate and some biscuits. Something sweet to keep up morale and keep up energy. Sure, the bunker in Sheffield would have had rations and some stored water, but no room for treats or anything nice, so by all means, bring some hobnobs. Talking of food after nuclear war, we know that survivors above ground would be scouring the landscape for anything edible. And we later see Ruth sinking her face gladly into a dead sheep. I wondered if the Americans had anything nicer planned for their hungry survivors. So I turned uh, to Garrett Graff's brilliant book Raven Rock and I found this nice little tidbit for you. In Kansas, officials calculated they could probably assemble two million pounds of food after an attack and that if survivors reduced consumption to an austerity diet of 2,000 calories, the state's food stocks could last nearly two months. Besides the official stocks, Kansas's wildlife could help. Its forests, plains and waters contained, officials believed, 11 million man-days of food in rabbit meat, 10 million man-days of wild birds, 5 million man-days of edible fish, and perhaps most macabre of all, nearly 20 million man-days of meat in residential pets. So throughout this scene you will hear the annoying beep of the carry receiver and the men tuck into their dry Weetabix, studying their paperwork, reading about blast radius and skin burns. And a woman naturally a woman, it's 1984, walks past with a tray of teas and coffees. And they all seem very dark, again, no milk. She gives a cup of black, black tea to one of the bunker staff, who's shouting down the phone, Look, just get down here! Presumably to one of the bunker staff who hasn't bothered to turn up. This would have been, again, a real problem if this scenario ever happened. You can, in advance of the attack, Draw up lists of perfect employees. Whom shall we choose for bunker duty? Oh yes, this guy, that guy. Perfect attendance, never off sick, never causes a fuss. Top qualifications, steady, diligent, trustworthy. But how do you know he'll turn up on the day? Another guy's on the phone, equally stressed out, barking that he's got serious public order problems and needs another six PSUs. I'm using traffic wardens already, he says. Ah, is that our first glimpse of our terrifying bloodstained traffic warden we see later? And what are these PSUs he talks about in nuclear war? 
These would have been police support units. And police planning for nuclear war says these units will be formed of 35 regular male police officers and a civilian driver. They are mobile units, which will, of course, offer what they call flexibility on dealing with the unique stresses and tasks of controlling the population and maintaining law and order. Being mobile means they can go where they're needed, of course, but it means they can also flee a situation if the fallout gets too heavy or if the rioting mobs get too scary. I want to say thank you to everyone for listening. Um, As you know, if you're a regular listener, there hasn't been a podcast for the last couple of weeks. And as I explained previously, that's because I am finishing my book. But I thought I would uh, do one today. And I want to give a special thank you to all my patrons. They, of course, donate money each month to support my podcast and all my nuclear research, my nuclear work. And I've also got some new patrons to say thank you and welcome to. We've got Glenn Armstrong... Paul O'Donnell, Ross, Jason Palmer and Graham Kamak. And let me also thank Martha Prankard who increased her uh, pledge each month. So thank you everyone for still listening, for still subscribing and of course thank you to all my patrons.